BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Digital trends show up every day in business decisions and actions. West Monroe is the number one strategic partner translating technology into financial value for companies. The This Is Digital podcast applies West Monroe's two decades of secrets and best practices to your business's benefit. Favorite past topics from the last three seasons include how AI and the next generation of employees are shaping the workplace, becoming a product company, Highmark's journey, and what does it mean to put the customer first? Learn more at westmonroe.com. Pushkin. Hey, Khalil. Hey, hey. The other day, my brother Jake, he stopped by. Mm-hmm. And while he was standing there, I secretly dialed his cell phone. Oh, okay. <laughs> secretly. All right. That's intriguing. So what happened? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know what that is, right? Yeah, that's the theme song to Sanford and Son. <laughs> yep. Quincy Jones. It's the second greatest theme song to a show ever. Really? Wow. Yeah. Like ever. Like of all theme yeah. songs it, across all television history. I didn't say just television, any show. Okay. Because you, you know what the best theme song is. <laughs> uh, not not moving on up. <laughs> no. Nope. Lil Lily, man. Little Lily. Little <laughs> right. Lily. Of course. Some of my best uh, friends. We are young. That's right. <laughs> SPF. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So. So my brother, that's his cell phone ringtone. I love it. And of course, of course, I had to ask him about it. Why do you have that as your ringtone? Well, that is my favorite television show of all time. I think that uh, Red Fox is the greatest American comedian. Wow. <laughs> he doesn't, he, does, he speaks in absolutes, and I love that. That's my brother. That's right. So this, this sparks what I think is going to be our episode today. That's right. That... I want to talk to you about Sanford and Son, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about its greatness and all the way Jake is saying. Okay. Uh, but what I really want to talk to you about is how this TV show from the 1970s really does the same thing that we always do on this podcast. Uh-oh. Break it down. Which is, to, you know, like, how does it reveal the absurdities and challenges of race in America today? Okay. All right. So so you're saying that for, for Sanford and Son... It was showing us something about the society we were living in when that show started. And it's still mad relevant even 50 years ah, later. Well, I love we're going to talk about Sanford and Son because I want to talk about the Jeffersons. 
which Uh-oh. which could not be more opposite to Sanford and Son, a story set in a junkyard uh, for a father and son. And my story is set in an Upper East Side luxury apartment of a striving Black family with their son, Lionel, and the absurdities of their experience as literal newcomers on the block of wealth and power or some kind of power in America in the 1970s. Okay, okay, so this is a special episode of Some of My Best Friends Are. <laughs> we're talking about old TV shows, yes. but we're really talking about how how they're timeless and how they're, they're relevant to today. And listen, man, this is going to be fun. This is going to be a lot of fun. Listeners, one more thing. I want to give a warning. The TV shows that we discuss use some strong racial language, including the use of the N-word. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right, Khalil, all right, Sanford and Son. Okay, Sanford and Son goes on the air (laughs) in 1972, and it runs for six seasons on NBC. And I know you know the show, but I'm going to give you a little refresher on what it's about. Yeah, but I haven't seen the show in a long time, so it wasn't my homework. And and I just have to say, I didn't realize it it, it premiered my birth year, 1972. Wow. Mm. So here's the premise. Okay. There's a father and son, adult son. Mm Mm-hmm. They own a junkyard, which, you know, like a salvage business, an antique business, in Watts, in South Central Los Angeles. Okay. All right? And the main character's name is Fred Sanford. His son is named Lamont. Fred Sanford is played by the comedian Red Fox. That's right. And Lamont is played by Demond Wilson. Okay. So a lot of the show is just this kind of situational humor of the father and son dynamic. Yep. Fred's a widower. 
He is, he doesn't want his son to move out. He wants him to keep on living with him. And Lamont, and this is a funny kind of way that humor works, is is kind of miserable. Mm. You know, like miserable because <laughs> like, he, like, he wants to get away from his pops. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the family business. What is it? He just feels like he feels a lot of resentment and he feels like a kind of failure. And so so listen to this. This is a clip from the first episode. I just can't stand being poor like this. Poor. You think this is poor? When I was a kid with seven us in the family. Seven. We slept in the same room, same bed, same underwear. <laughs> When I was a youngster, I wore one pair of tennis shoes, five years, wore them out up to the name on the ankle. <laughs> Do you know them shoes they had called kids? I wore mine till they said, <laughs> yo, yo, I mean. So what? what is so powerful and wonderful about that is that you can hear Red Fox just doing stand-up, right? Like the show totally. is just a set piece for, for a riff that, that he's probably done many times before. Yeah, totally, totally. And, and, you know, I'll just take a step back because like a lot of American sitcoms, it's based on a British sitcom. Mm-hmm. And also like a lot of American sitcoms, it's written and produced by Jewish people. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But just like you said, the thing that, that, that changes it is like the secret sauce is Red Fox, the comedian. He's a comic genius. Um, he is just, you know, even when this show comes on the air in 1972, he is a wildly successful comic. Okay, so his, um, his reputation ha- is already, he's already a superstar. Oh, yeah, he's like yeah, the Eddie Murphy yeah. of his generation. Yeah, and you know, and so much, so much of the comedy it's not the writing of the jokes, it's his delivery. Mm. It's, it's the way his facial expressions, his sight gags, the way he walks, the way he moves. Going back to what my brother says, you know, my brother actually has studied Red Fox. Jake says that Red Fox is like a jazz musician improvising with each measure. Ah, I like that. And, 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 and I'll just give you an example. So like, I'm gonna play another clip for you right okay. here. It's the start of another episode. Fred says it's his birthday. He's like singing happy and birthday to me. And how old is Fred? So for for someone who may never have seen Fred Sanford in I'm, his character. I was just about to say, okay. <laughs> he, just, he just turned 65. Okay, got it. And so so he's going to call the Social Security office it's to time find to get out paid. When, his checks start, <laughs> when his checks start coming in. Time to get paid. Listen to this. Right. This recording does not repeat, so please wait until a line is free. And I wouldn't have to wait if I was white. <laughs> Right. That's like one of the funniest jokes ever. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's just one of the and, and his delivery is deadpan delivery. But man, I got to tell you, the setup to this joke, there's like two or three minutes of him just like looking for his glasses, of you know, looking like a curmudgeon walking over there, knowing that the comedy is just emanates from. It's him. just physical at that, um, for, for, at that moment. It's just physical comedy. Yeah, 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 yeah. When I was preparing for this, you know, this show with you, I watched an episode with Danielle, my wife. And in one of the episodes, he's putting on a toupee, and like for two minutes, he's just looking at in the in the mirror, putting on the toupee. It is fall on the floor funny. <laughs> all right, like it is just—it's his facial expression, everything about. Well, the it. one thing I wanted to say about that delivery that I wouldn't have to wait as I was if I was white is it, it's both genius in terms of being such a simple punchline, but it also contains a little bit of anger in it. Like it. It, totally. it, it feels a little bit like, mm, like, you, like you're laughing, but yeah, you're yeah. like, oh, wow, he's serious. Okay, and so this gets me to the next thing I want to talk about, exactly that, of like what it means to have a black cast mm. and for this to be a black show. It's set in a black neighborhood in Los Angeles. Um, 
and and the the cast around him red fox sort of brings in the people that he's worked with on the chitlin circuit you know they're sort of like uh so older older entertainers lesser known older but like geniuses gray, gray all heads, kinds of talented people, people. like him okay. you know if you've watched the show the people who play grady and esther all of them are like his friends and it's it's just part of the humor is just seeing comedians so comfortable with one another being themselves and i know i know the chitlin circle circuit is common enough a term but it's not exactly a household term so it's a term for uh for the places where black people performed for black people mostly in the south juke joints speakeasies you know it was it was just basically wherever black people could get together outside the gaze of white people and have a good time yeah, like there's always been an alternative universe, especially during segregated yep, America. Yep. Um, and so you might know this, but but this is this is essentially the first predominantly black cast since Amos and Andy oh, really? comes on in the 1950s. I did not know that. You know, and Amos and Andy, which is often criticized for a kind of minstrelsy. Yes. But you know, this is this is like 20 plus years later. Yes. Um, and you know, and and this is the other thing I want to say, man. Like this show in the 70s is wildly popular. Okay. So it's not just for black audience. It is one of the most popular shows in America. Yeah. Before this show, it seems like the Brady Bunch, which is like, if people don't know, it's the whitest show ever. And it's a it's a version of, of Los Angeles and suburban Los Angeles, which couldn't be whiter. It, it's like Leave it to Beaver 1950 right. stuff. Um, but, but then, so this show is about race and also about class. You know, they're poor mm-hmm. and it's it's comedy. So it's not like it's always social issues. But this show and the majority of the most popular shows during this era are all similar shows. All in the Family, which are white working class family. That's right. So Good Times, Chico and the Man, Welcome Back, Cotter, uh, Rhoda, Mary Tyler Moore, who is about a, a working woman. That's right. This is so fascinating because like... That's so different from today. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about this later after you talk about the Jeffersons and what this means. But but man, like, did we regress? Like, um, you know, I think about almost every show today sort of creates this classless world. Like, people are so wealthy in some unnamed way that you don't even have to talk about money. I see. All these, right. show, all these shows in the 70s are about pretty much kind of like either working class or impoverished people and race is at the center. And like, think about like, this is after civil rights, after sort of the the racial turmoil and riots and uprisings of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. It's after Attica in 1971. Like this is a year after that, this, this prison uprising and violent repression that kills 39 people. This is America is like, even as we're, America is sort of becoming way more conservative, like Nixon is president and like we're moving into the Reagan years. Comedy is still like in this moment fascinated by the world of race and class. Yeah, can I add one thing? Yeah. So I looked up a New Yorker article dating to 1975, and a critic okay. was looking at the world of Norman Lear, who is behind the shows that you mentioned. Totally. And of course, the Sanford and Son and the Jeffersons we're talking about today. But just to emphasize the point you've made, the critic in 1975 estimated that 120 million people watched every week one of those shows or more. And the critic estimates that that amounted to 5 billion people watching a year or 5 billion views a year. Can you imagine the reach of those shows? Just to your point. What happened where America... Who, this was saturating the culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and as part of whatever backlash, I mean, this is also the start of mass incarceration at this moment and other things. Um, 
that that moves away from these topics. Yeah. Well, what you're saying, I mean, in in short, is that people were learning something meaningful and impactful. Yeah. All right. So I don't want to oversell Sanford and Son as sort of like you know as the truth, a, a, <laughs> according to Red, Red Fox. <laughs> so much of the humor is also like all in the family. Fred Sanford is a total bigot. Mm. Fr- Fred Sanford is a racist. Fred Sanford is ignorant as <laughs> all right. Ignorant and that's, AF, that's the yes. joke. That's the joke. Okay. Like, like he is completely provincial and you're seeing how somebody thinks, you know, when they're they're by themselves. I'll add that like almost every sitcom operates this way. Mm. That that we learn the exaggerated limitations of a character. That characters are super limited and then they get to be put in moments and situations and we get to see their limitations play out. Got it. Often in very problematic ways and then like sometimes in sweet ways where they overcome their limitations. So you can re- you can reproduce this over. The Office is exactly like that, or Abbott Elementary is exactly like that. Almost every show is exactly like right. that. Um, and Fred is universal in his targets. Mm. Okay, everybody he, he, it comes. Oh man, comes he in. talks about Jewish people. <laughs> he talks about Latinos. He talks about Asians. He sort of shakes his hand in this way that like assuming people are gay over and over again, mm. and that's you know that's a lot of like laugh lines. And also other black people. Yeah. There's this uh, there's this funny episode where he he goes to the dentist and he has a black dentist and of course he's like no 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 this guy can't be good. Okay. I, I want the white dentist. You know <laughs> it's like, like, like like the the old saying that white ice is colder than than <laughs> anyone else's. <laughs> All right. So here's where I want to go with this, Khalil. I need to share one specific episode with you. Okay. Because this sort of is like where Sanford and Son takes this race stuff in a really a different place and an interesting place. Um, there's an episode in 1974 called Fred Sanford Legal Eagle. And and here's what he happens. He sets up a, a business to uh, to provide legal <laughs> no, no, services. No. <laughs> Lamont Lamont gets a traffic ticket. Okay. You know, he's in Watts, he's in South Central, an all black neighborhood, and he's stopped by a white cop and he feels that it happened unjustly. And and just a question for you, is the context of the Watts uprising, which had occurred in 1965 and had like totally transformed the conversation about civil rights would lead to the Kerner report under Johnson? Like, is that part? Is there any signposting of that in this episode? I'm so glad you brought that okay. up because kind of listen to this and we'll we'll come back okay, to that. All right. Like put a pin in that because it, it how could you imagine People know Watts and know South Central because of that. Correct. And yet it, it's, you know, so it, it defines the it, everyone's conception of it's, that area. It's the only thing most people actually know who are not have ever heard from LA, Sanford Watts, or South. California. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Lamont feels like he's been profiled. Uh, so he's going to fight the ticket in court. And here is Lamont on the witness stand as the judge tells him he can't address the white cop in court, in the courtroom directly. Oh, Mr. Sanford, I would think that whatever question you had would be better asked by your counsel. Are you represented by counsel? Well, see, when I came up here, I figured that... Uh, Pardon me, Judge. Did you say that that question could be better answered by his counsel? That is correct. Who are you? I'm his counsel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here we are, classic sitcom setup, fish out of water, Fred Sanford, who's always disruptive wherever he goes. He doesn't follow any of the rules. He's, it's his obliviousness. He just doesn't care. A moment where you can just, you let Fred be Fred. Right. And, and so I need you to hear what happens next and how this yeah, plays out. Yeah, because I'm thinking, does this work to Lamont's advantage or not? Oh man, it's crazy. Because I am actually not sure even what to make of this moment from, from 
uh, network television <laughs> in 1974. Okay. So Fred, acting as Lamont's lawyer, he turns to the LAPD officer and begins to question him. Okay. Listen, why don't you arrest some white drivers? I do. You do? Well, where are they? Look at all these niggas in here. enough niggas in here to make a Tarzan movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. What? Yes. That's network television. That is un That's network television. unbelievable. Yeah. So, and think, I mean, and think, yeah, we, you go ahead. No, what you were you... five. I was three. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and like, although we didn't watch these when they premiered, we grew up on these. And and frankly, our kids have watched TV land versions of these shows. It's just it's just it's just incredible to think about the racial politics and the language and the raw edge of social commentary and criticism expressed in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really well put. Uh, this is something I learned from Jake also. Mm -hmm. Paul Mooney helped write that episode. Ah. Paul Mooney, the black writer, he wrote for Richard Pryor. He, people might have seen him on Chappelle's show. He was a recurring character as well. Yeah. Um, and so he wrote that, that line, and he thought the joke was the second part about Tarzan, which is, you know, <laughs> it's supposed to be set in Africa. But, but there's such a laugh line of just Fred stating the truth. Yes. And stating it with this, fl you know, flourish, this embellished word that you don't hear on network television. Well, well, not and, anymore. And but it, it turns out you, because yeah. when we get to the Jeffersons, <laughs> boy, oh boy. But but like the the joke is just stating the facts. Mm -hmm. It's stating the sense of racial oppression. Yeah. And that how, how is that funny, right? Like that's kind of why. Well, it's stating it. I mean, I'm hearing it again for the first time, maybe ever, uh, and certainly in a long time, if I watched it at, at all. And it's like that earlier clip you played. It's both hilarious for the inside humor that that speaks to black people, right? Because they've all been there yes. in that moment. Yes. And also insider, the searing right. criticism that the N-word is the way in which the criminal justice system treated and understood black people as deserving of this this punitive system. Yeah. And and I I'll, I'm going to add something about this episode because Fred is also undercutting the politics. Mm. Uh all of his cronies come to the courtroom, you know, all of his buddies. Uh oh, they're all there. Bubba, <laughs> Grady, and and he's actually betting with them whether Lamont's going to get uh <laughs> you know get off or not you know so so he's like got two to one odds and so on and he's like even as he's saying this he's winking to his friends um so it's just funny like he's speaking in many voices yes. if you know what i mean like like it's working on all these different levels and yeah i just um something about this the seriousness of this moment of being part of the national conversation and you talked about the watts riots i mean here it is about the Watts riots. Yeah. It's exactly about because, that, even I mean, if it's not stated. It, it, I mean, and, and obviously most people know this, but the Watts riot and a thousand other ones were all centered around some police activity, some instance of police brutality, injustice, outright killing. I mean, al almost every so-called civil disturbance of the time period, riot or uprising, all centered around policing. Yeah, but but let's take a quick break. And when we come back, you can break down some stuff to me about the Jeffersons and we'll think about the connections and, and what to make of this. Let's do it. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. N.A. member FDIC. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. Ben, man, that was so much fun revisiting Sanford and Son, hearing Red Fox. I mean, someone who was before our time, uh, but, you know, we got we got to know a little bit of him through Sanford and Son. Oh, just but but always right on time. <laughs> exactly. You know, I just want to talk about in the context of what's happening just years after the civil rights movement. This is the period of time by early 1970 when when a whole new generation of black people are entering into they're they're becoming mayors of cities. They are moving into uh, positions okay. in middle management and companies all over the place. I call this the era of black firsts. Black first, okay. That's right. And another way to think of it, it is, it's also the age of the self-made black man and woman. Anyone of that generation picking up an Ebony magazine or a Jet magazine would see, you know, these beautiful black people in full color, you know, celebrating black excellence in the 1970s and 80s, especially. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So the image of Sanford, instead of being so impoverished and kind of run down and, and slovenly, <laughs> not that. Like that sort of cuts against this image. That's right. Because the image yeah. of poverty had always defined the sort of debate about black people coming out of slavery, then as sharecroppers. And of course, black Southerners through the civil rights movement had always always presented themselves as respectable. You know, you never saw anybody in a civil rights protest that was covered by the news who wasn't in a three piece suit and, and wearing a, yeah, a fancy yeah. fedora or a woman in a skirt. Yeah. 
So super interesting, man, because because the critique of Sanford and Son from at the time was that he's not like a credit to the race. You know, that <laughs> yeah. that, that that this isn't what the Cosby show would be like in the nineteen eighties where everything is pristine. That's right. So so there is a tension. I mean, what what Sanford and Son brings to the national cultural milieu of that time is this essentially kind of war between two competing images of black America. What year does the Jeffersons appear? 1975 is, is when the, the show Man, premieres. That seems so much earlier than I would have thought. I remember watching it on, you know, on air at the time. It must have been later episodes, but I remember watching it with my brother. Well, the curious thing is it ran for 11 seasons. So okay, that makes by sense. the time- Through the 80s. That's yeah. right. We were- 13, 14 years old, just about high school yeah. by the time this show actually went off the air. So it captured a lot of time. But talking about this age of the self-made black man and woman, Richard Nixon actually initiates in his presidency, in his first term after his election in 1968, he's going to try to pick off black people by initiating this domestic policy of black capitalism. And okay. what that meant, practically speaking, was by turning black people into capitalists, by encouraging the private sector to give them jobs, by making some key appointments in the federal government, by establishing a small business loan operation, which ultimately produces minority and women contracts to this very day for federal and state and local contracting. Nixon was like, I'm going to secure the future of the Republican Party by focusing on black elites, or at least by manufacturing them. It's Come on, Professor. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. <laughs> it's so, a, so, so it's a sense of like I got mine. Uh, really, sort of promoting individualism over a sort of like a, a whole sort of social idea, collective good. That's exactly right. He's gonna he's gonna be the answer to Lamont's prayers. If Lamont in Sanford okay. and Sud says I don't want to be poor, Richard Nixon is gonna say, Hey, you can become rich if you just follow the Republican Party plan. And it's always gonna be about individualists. The first season of The Jefferson gives voice to this idea. But this show is built around this new era of a self-made black man and woman who in the case of The Jeffersons are going to literally move up, like literally move on up. I mean, the whole theme song is a is a commentary on exactly right. this point. We are moving on up, moving to the east side to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Everybody's heard this song at some point. Oh, man, man. So this is this is almost like the show is an illustration exactly of this idea. They're on the Upper East Side of New York City in a penthouse. Uh, and 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 the main guy, George Jefferson, Sherman Hemsley, the actor, he runs, if I remember, a cleaning business. That's right. That dry how he makes dry his cleaners and laundry. Dry yes. cleaners. Yes. Okay. Yep. And so, so what what we learn of this couple is that you know George is this successful businessman. When we first meet them, uh, essentially they are in this luxury apartment. He's he wears double breasted and three piece suits. He occasionally yeah. wears an ascot and a smoking jacket. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Louise, his wife, who's played by Isabel Sanford, George is played by Sherman Helmsley. And they are fighting constantly. I mean, this is like if if Leave it to Beaver, which you mentioned earlier, was like the idyllic white suburban housewife and 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 husband and their two, you know, beautiful kids. One just happens to be mischievous. This is just the opposite. <laughs> These two are fighting okay. constantly. And in, indeed, the fight itself is the uh, platform 
through which they often explore the tensions in their own family. Louise, it turns out, is much more concerned about, you know, the trappings of being rich. George is obsessed with it. George is doing everything in his power to make more money, to open more stores, to to make more contacts. And Louise is like, you know, I feel kind of useless in this space. And, and you know, I'm not used to not working. And, and I'm concerned about Lionel, who is their adult son, so interesting that some of the dynamics from Sanford and Son continue here, and some are in a completely different setting, an economic world. That's right. And and interestingly enough, I mean, dating ourselves, George, believe it or not, and Louise are like 46 years old. <laughs> so they're actually right, right. younger in this movie or this TV show than, than we are at this time. But, but George is the son of a sharecropper, and Louise is the daughter of a janitor. So we meet them in this small setting where it's the two of them, their son. There are two other um, sets of characters that are very meaningful. It's There's an interracial couple, Tom and Helen Willis. Oh. And, and, you know, that they're my role models for life. <laughs> that's right. Tom is white, <laughs> Helen is black, and their daughter, Jenny. There is George's mother, Mother Jefferson. She is worth watching every episode of the first season. She is incredible. Okay. So the, the final person that, uh, that I want to mention briefly is the maid, Florence. Florence, in the opening episode of the show, gives voice to the class tensions that are on full view in the Jeffersons. Let's hear it in this clip. Do you folks mind if I ask you something? No, go right ahead. You live in this apartment, right? Uh-huh. And you got an apartment in this building, too? Yes, that's right. Well, how come we overcame and nobody told me? Yeah, there's something that throws her off about this whole dynamic. Yeah, so there there are really some some powerful themes that come through in the Jeffersons that I want to talk about that's consistent with this class tension. So if Sanford and Son, as you've already suggested, is really sort of the bridge between the world of Watts and uprisings and poor people left behind in America, this is an right. aspirational vision. This is a normative vision. And this, this takes us into the Reagan era. This is like a, a, a Reagan theme show, even if it starts before it. That's right. So let's just start with one theme, which is the interracial politics of the show. I mean, here it is. Some of my best friends are. This show okay. is playing to this issue. And we want to understand precisely how they, as a Black family, are navigating proximity to white people, which, of course, is now on equal terms rather than in the world of Sanford and Son, which is always right. about power and conflict. And so the show comes out swinging in the first episode. First of all, George is constantly <laughs> calling Tom and Helen a zebra couple. So it's right. very explicit language to like make fun of them. There's a lot of conversation about the N-word, about, about, they use the word hunky all the time. The word whitey is ubiquitous. But there are also these moments where there's this commentary about how white people are not all that they are cracked up to be. In fact, Mother Jefferson says to Louise in, in one episode, she's like, I think you're out cheating on George because you didn't meet me where you were supposed to be. And Louise, of course, is like, that's ridiculous. And Mother Jefferson's line, she comes back and she says, if you live among the white folks, some of their ways are bound to rub off. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like the vices. That's right. And then there are all these references to blacks and Jews, which I have to say, I didn't pick up, of course, uh, before, but they're the playful references. For example, at some point, they're hosting a party and they have out 
bagels and lox and cream cheese. And, and George is like, mmm, Jewish soul food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I'm, when Just when you said that, in my memory of the show and the, the, the white characters that you described, they are so goyish. They are so not Jewish. Mm. And that, that you have all these white writers, but they the, the, the white sort of buffoony characters, whether they're British or sort of, you know, very waspy, they don't write in Jews as the neighbors. That's interesting. Actually, there's a this isn't this isn't the Upper West Side, for example. That's right, it's the Upper East Side. <laughs> so, yeah. just to give people a sense of how language works, and this is not Red Fox. This is Sherman Helmsley and 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 Isabel Sanford. I want you to hear this clip. Now, this is a moment where George basically buys his son Lionel a very expensive watch. So let's listen to the clip. Which again, heads up, the N word is in here too. Well, it must be at least. Hundred dollars. Three fifty. Three hundred and fifty dollars for a watch, nigga. Please. Oof. What? <laughs> Man. What? Yeah, exactly. Huh? That was. That surprised me. Yes. That. I, I don't. Rem- I don't remember that about the show, and I. I thought. Yeah. I mean, so George is flexing, like he wants the the price he's proud of. I'm, I'm imagining. In that episode, uh, yeah, no, he's he's totally flexing. This is bling. He's yeah. blinging. He wants his son to yeah. shine. He he wants to show his wealth, which is you know part of a a familiar trope of like nouveau riche, right? You wear it on your literally wear it on your sleeve. Yeah, they're of this world and not of this world. That's a lot, that's a lot of the the humor is derived out of that. Yeah. So so of course I already told you the N word is is ubiquitous, but it's not just Man. it's not just like the timing of of dropping the N word in these episodes. It's also like using the n-word in mixed company and and that is what's mm. different in this show is like how do you navigate at least as the writers understand it what's on people's minds so in this scene yeah. george and wheezy are having one of their usual fights and they're having it in front of tom and helen and basically it turns on like this question of like why do you guys always fight with each other um in front of this interracial couple so we're going to play the cl- clip in here what they say. Tom and Helen, they don't fight. They don't fight because they're scared to fight. What's that supposed to mean? You know damn well what it means. If you two ever really started going at one another, inside of five minutes, he'd be calling you... Don't say it. Nigga. He said it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh, man. So... So obviously with this interracial couple, instead of us just assuming that there is no racial tension in the, in the relationship itself, George actually transposes his own animosity his own sense of race onto this other couple oh man i i'm thinking one about how the n-word is deployed differently in in the the clip i played you from from uh, sanford and son and in these moments and and also about this continuum from the early 70s and and sort of coming out of the the racial uprising of the 60s through the Jeffersons into the 80s, which is about moving on up, yep. about this individualism. And, and still we're hearing, you know, the Jeffersons is still about, about class differences and racial differences, but we're just moving them from the junkyard into the Upper East Side. Yep. But in a way, the dynamics are similar. Yeah. So let's talk about how they deal with class or the class divide actually in how whites perceive that class divide. So rather than it just being about how black people themselves are navigating their new wealth in a white world, 
part of what the show does is to expose how white people are trying to make sense of their new black middle class and elite neighbors. So in this scene, George has just bought a brand new piano for the home. No one can play it and no one is interested in playing it. It is literally a set piece for uh, for showing off his new wealth in front of his white neighbors. Yeah. And they happen to be, there happens to be a large gathering of them in his apartment because he's been elected to lead a tenant protest against the building management because they've raised prices to, you know, for the, for the association fee. Okay. So, all right. So one of the it's guests, a, it, one of the guests approaches George to thank him for taking leadership. We're going to hear this in the clip. Oh, hello, Jefferson. I must say we're delighted that you're leading the protest, aren't we, Marion? Enchanted. Yes, you colored folk can teach us a lot. <laughs> How to be militant. What do you call a militant? I'm a businessman. Do I look like a militant to you? <laughs> yes. The answer is yes to that. <laughs> exactly. That's hilarious. So it's like appropriating all of the all of the militancy of the last ten years and saying like now we can use it for our own good on the Upper East Side. On the Upper East Side. That's, that's hilarious. Right. And also assuming <laughs> that every black person was a militant yeah. of that time period. And George is like, no, Man. don't pigeonhole me. All right, all right, I gotta ask you a question. Okay. Because I'm thinking about the Jeffersons, and you are working on a book that's called Bootstrapping which is essentially exactly about this. Mm -hmm. It's about the Jeffersons in a way and about this moment and what you started out talking about, you know, from the Nixon era through the Reagan era. So how does this sitcom play into sort of your thesis, your idea of, of black individualism, of, of, you know, and, and that it even has a kind of corrosive effect on society? So that's a really good question because... As you know, my book is trying to make sense of the emergence of this new generation of black elites and what their politics right. are. And to some degree, the Jefferson perfectly encapsulates the early tension for this new generation. They're trying to make sense of their own success. They're trying to figure out, like, are we leaving the community behind? Like, how do huh. we connect with white people? Are we, do we have shared interest? Uh, you know, are we totally aligned or are we not? And one of the aspects of the, the show is the tension that the Jeffersons themselves find themselves in between. And, and, and that's what yeah, I would say yeah. to answer your question. It, they are an in-between. The, they are in a middle space. They are neither, they've neither drunk the tea of individual success as the only measure of racial progress, right. and they don't leave behind the people who they grew up with. In fact, one of the scenes is the scene with an old couple that they lived with in a rat-infested apartment, and they haven't seen this couple in years. And Louise is so excited to host them for dinner, except that they happen to be coming on the same night that this rich black businessman named Coleman Harris has already been invited. And of right. course, George is a thousand percent committed to doing business with this guy. And in the scene, you hear this older couple say, hey, we're uncomfortable being around this guy. Like, we don't know him. And usually these people are not very kind to us. And George and Weezer are like, no, 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 we'll, we'll work it out. But then they end up having this conversation about working class black people. You know, Sims, the trouble with the working class is that they don't want to work anymore. I don't know about you, but I'm having a lot of trouble getting colored help. Yeah, what color are you looking for? <laughs> and you know what I mean. A lot of our people not asking the door when opportunity knocks. How much are you knocking with? <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, how much are you paying? Well, what difference does that make? 
When all the people are out of work, you'd think they'd be glad to get anything. But no, they'd rather sit at home, living lazy on welfare. Living lazy on welfare? Let me tell you something, Mr. Harris. How you like the wine, Mr. Harris? <laughs> Man, I was, I was wondering if sort of that idea of, of welfare was also brought into this, of, you know, this, this hot-button issue right at this moment of whether it's actually, you know, sapping initiative or whether we should actually invest more in people. Um, all right, so The Jeffersons, your book, hilarious. Uh, I can hear of sort of this in-between space. It's the recipe for a lot of hilarious comedy. And this idea of being a first, as you were saying, do you sort of revel in it for yourself or do you start thinking about how you make seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths and, and the community that you came from that you also lift up? Um, is that also the tension? I think all of that. I think I think it's it's exactly what you just said. And for the Jeffersons, they are a vehicle ultimately for the writers to explore. Like we don't really know how this is going to work out, and that's what's so. I mean, I, I, fun is not quite the word. It's kind of brilliant about the show. Like in, instead of just writing something that wasn't real, they actually try to reflect the very conversations that people were having in these spaces of, of a new black elite or new black middle class and the extent to which they owed working class people anything, including jobs, or whether they blamed them for not moving on up like they did. All of it is on full view in this show. And I would say handled with a lot of smarts um, and, and, and a lot of effective writing. All right, man. Well, then I need to come back to this question that I raised at the beginning when I, about the popularity of these shows and this moment in America when this is what mainstream America wanted to see. Mm. Crazy. This is what America in the <laughs> 70s and into the 80s, they wanted to, to, to spend their evenings with issues of race and class and questioning all these, all these things that are going on in the country. What happened? You know, like, like that, that even to laugh at these things, that they kind of disappear. And the shows, even the interracial shows that, that are on the air by the time we're teenagers, and this is off the air, are not like this at all. You know, Miami Vice, there's a black and white lead. They don't ever talk about race. They don't talk about sort of that dynamic at all. It just exists. Yeah. The Cosby Show doesn't talk about class at all. You know, it's, 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 it's invisible. They're, they just are. Um, obviously, I know the answer to a lot of what happened, but it still boggles the mind. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And I think it is the emergence of a massive cultural shift that comes with the Reagan era, uh, a kind of shift that uh, to, to really focus on Reagan as a singular politician who first coined the phrase, make America great, uh, essentially whitewashed the politics of the nation. Uh, here was a guy who who essentially was an yeah. early version of anti-CRTs, like, you know, this country is not what the socialist left mm. is telling you it is. This is the greatest nation on earth. And he won over uh, the Archie Bunkers of the world um, who were no longer feeling conflicted or guilty or even having a kind of moral obligation to make real the promises of the civil rights movement. In fact, they got angrier and more hostile. And so too did the nation's politics. And the, the talk about Coleman Harris, the black guy in that scene that we just heard, uh, you know, this notion of, of people being on welfare as being lazy embodied the entire 
Republican revolution of the 1980s and 1990s. And I think TV followed. Man, these shows tell us about the history of America. <laughs> when we make our AP sitcom <laughs> history culture class that's going to get banned in 25 states <laughs> this is going to be this is going to be you know part of the curriculum this is going to be first semester and second semester i think i already saw that DeSantis had had, had banned <laughs> sanford and son and uh and, and the jeffersons from the existing apfm studies curriculum oh, man that's why we're going to get it in a secret ways. That's why you got to come to some of my best friends are to get the real stuff. That's right. All right, man. Well, this was a whole lot of fun and I learned man, a whole lot. I, I'm going to go watch the Jeffersons and I'm going to watch my, now I'm hooked on Sanford and Son again. I got to, I got to tee up and we've been watching it all. All right, man. Love you. All right. Love you too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. This show is produced by Lucy Sullivan. It's edited by Sarah Nix with help from Keishel Williams. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong, and our managing producer is Constanza Gallardo. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. And that was a lot of fun, man. That was so much fun. I got serious. Hey. Save it uh, for the la- tape. Save it la- for the tape. Serious laugh <laughs> therapy on that. All right. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Digital trends show up every day in business decisions and actions. West Monroe is the number one strategic partner translating technology into financial value for companies. The This Is Digital podcast applies West Monroe's two decades of secrets and best practices to your business's benefit. Favorite past topics from the last three seasons include how AI and the next generation of employees are shaping the workplace, becoming a product company, Highmark's journey, and what does it mean to put the customer first? Learn more at westmonroe.com.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 